You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Last week, we were looking at temporal dislocation during World War II, and today we're going to be thinking about time again, but time in the future. We're going to be looking at how we visualize future conflict through storytelling. My guests today are Dr. Emily Spears, who's a senior lecturer in creative futures at Lancaster University. Dr. Will Slocum, a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool, who specializes in science fiction and Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Brown, Chief of Future Concepts and Strategy with the RAF Air Staff on loan from the US Air Force. Matt has been pioneering the use of fiction to help members of the RAF visualize what their future might look like. And Emily and Will have been working with him. They are both part of the Futures Literacy Through Narrative Research Group, Flint for short, which promotes the use of imaginative storytelling in policymaking circles as a way of envisaging uncertain futures and communicating possible futures in impactful ways. And that connects very much with Matt's work where, as I've said, storytelling is used to visualize future military scenarios and how people and not just technology might behave. So I'm really looking forward to talking to all three of them today about the power of storytelling to visualize and ultimately to shape future conflicts, ideally for the better. But first of all, let me thank you all for taking the time to talk to me today. Emily, Matthew, Will, it's great to get you together. Welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Alice. And thank you from me as well. So Emily, can we kick off with you? Together with Will and another of your colleagues, Genevieve Lively in Flint, you've published some really important work on the use of storytelling in futures thinking. So I wonder if you can explain to us, first of all, what is futures literacy? Thank you for that question, Alice. So futures literacy is a current kind of way of thinking about um, how we might engage with the future at the moment. It's really a field of futures thinking that has emerged over the last, I'd say, 10 years. And it's really been pushed, I suppose, championed um, by futures thinkers like Riel Miller and also Roberto Polly and futures literacy and anticipation studies sort of run hand in hand. And if we think how we might think about futures literacy, I think it's really useful to think about it first and foremost as a capability. So it's a kind of skill that allows people to better understand the role of the future in what they are seeing and doing. It sort of draws on the notion of literacy per se. So just as literacy in reading and writing allows us to pass and interpret information and things that we see in the world and read, being future literate empowers the imagination and enhances our ability to prepare and recover and think about the future as changes occur. 
So as I say, it sort of mimics this idea of reading and writing literacy because it is a kind of a skill that people can develop and, and can acquire. Although important to say that this is a skill that we have anyway as human beings, right? So we arranged to meet someone for a coffee tomorrow or, you know, we've arranged to have this conversation today. So there was an, a certain amount of kind of anticipation and projecting into the future that we did in our imaginations when we were preparing for this conversation and thinking about the things that we might want to talk about. But it's future literacy itself is about becoming better at using the future in the present, right? So it's not just to kind of use the future in order to um, achieve these practical kind of tasks and get to the meeting on time or pick up one's children or one's dog. It's enhancing that skill, flexing that muscle of being able to use the future in order to make decisions in the present. So the future doesn't exist and it can only be imagined. A kind of an imaginative muscle if you like that that one learns to flex um, and exercise and thereby becoming sort of better at making decisions for and about the future in the present so it's a capability but it's important also to note in relation to the conversation that we have today and Riel Miller actually has outlined this really nicely that futures thinking per se is largely a storytelling task so because the future doesn't exist yet. In the process of building futures literacy, what we're essentially doing is a storytelling job. It's a storytelling task. We're imagining, we're anticipating, we're weighing up options. And those are the kinds of things that narrative skills help us with. So that's some of the stuff that the work with Genevieve and Will as Flint, one of the things that we're doing is kind of fleshing out more how how important narrative and storytelling is to futures literacy. That's a fantastic overview then of this capability, this skill. I love the idea of literacy as something actually that is something that anyone can acquire. I think as we grow up and get funneled through school and education and so on, we often imagine that futures planning is done by very important people in very important offices and is a sort of a realm apart and it involves statistics and it involves lots and lots of data. And so I love the idea that futures literacy actually, you know, what you need is your imagination and you need storytelling powers. And that immediately, I suppose, democratizes it somewhat. Is that right? Is that one of the features of it? And I wonder if in answering that question, you can also say a little bit about how it contrasts with more traditional forms of futures planning, futures thinking. That's a really nice observation, Alice, and a really good question. Democratizing futures thinking is something that I and I know Will and Genevieve and a lot of the people that we work with are really passionate about. Um, it's one of the things that I think we'll come on to talk about a little bit more in this conversation later, but it, I don't think you can overemphasize how important it is to enhance everybody's capabilities when it comes to futures thinking. So in terms of how this fits in, um, futures literacy has been championed by UNESCO since about 2012. And you have UNESCO chairs for futures literacy scattered all over the world. And they're working through the method of what they call futures um, literacy laboratories. And they are taking this, this democratization of futures thinking and futures practice really seriously in terms of where they're going and the communities that they're working with. Some are extremely marginalized and at risk communities with whom they're working. 
So that's a really important aspect of what contemporary futures literacy work is about. It certainly aligns with my own ethical stance vis-a-vis -vis futures thinking and its value. But that's not always been the case. I mean, I know that you're a scholar of classical antiquity, aren't you, Alice? And if we go back to those kind of times, you know, futures thinking is a part of everyday life. So the oracle at Delphi and prophets and, and Teresius, it comes along and, and there's a kind of a sense of engagement with the future on, on a really practical everyday level. You know, you sacrifice some bulls in order to steer the future towards you. I've just been reading the Iliad. Um, <laughs> And the actual sort of storytelling itself and the creation of myths, those in themselves are kind of cyclical ways of thinking about the future and building a, a jetty. The juvenile calls it building jetties of knowledge into the future through stories. But something interesting happened, I think, after the Second World War, which is a kind of a retreat, if you like, of sanctioned futures thinking into the realm very much informed by a post-World War context, right? So very much in the West, in America and in Great Britain, futures thinking was sort of drawn into an industrial military kind of context. Companies like Shell and RAND, their research and development, American policy think tank RAND, really drove the direction of futures thinking in the West and it became very much dominated by scenarios. And scenarios purport to draw on a more positivist way of thinking about the future, as you say, one that is based on statistics, extrapolation, quantitative thinking. So in order to kind of steer businesses and steer governments in that post-World War context, futures thinking developed something of more of the positivist quantitative methodology that distinguishes it, I think, from that earlier kind of more storytelling, everyday life practice context. And that's been a real problem that futures thinking has continued to cluster globally, I think, around um, economics and technology, that economic and technological trends have become in the early 21st century to be seen as the kind of the drivers of futures alone. They're also seen as the guide for the future, you know, so the template has got to be around what the technology will be in the future and, and then that drives the markets. And it's also seen as the telos of the future, right? So the, when we think about the future, we think about that highly techno, jazzed up kind of futuristic world with all of the new tools and techs. So futures has become increasingly detached from everyday life and the voices also of the general public. So futures literacy are alongside the creative futures work that I do and anticipation studies more generally. So I'll in Ayatollah's causal layered analysis, which is very much part of this kind of more critical tradition. And then, of course, futures literacy as championed by Riel Miller and Roberto Poli and UNESCO more broadly, I think are picking up on that critical tradition again. And it's that critical tradition that is not only about more than the quantitative, more than the economic, more than the technological, but it's also about more than just the corporate paradigm and industrial paradigm of futures thinking. It's about getting more and more people involved in the thinking and the shaping of the futures and really taking that seriously. So you've pulled out so many interesting things there. I love the link you drew actually between futures literacy as it's being practiced and promoted now and 
storytelling by oracles in the ancient world. But it's really interesting to hear this sort of this move towards more economic, technocratic futures thinking that's detached more from everyday life, detached from individuals. And then to hear also about the way in which visioning actually gets people thinking about agency and engages people a little bit more. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to some of those points you've made there. In particular, I think the role of the future in the present, because that's incredibly important. I think we'll come on to that when we talk to Matt a bit more about some of his work. But Will, can I come to you next? Emily has mentioned just how important storytelling is in futures literacy. And I, I know that you study science fiction, among other things. So I wonder if you can start off by telling us, first of all, a little bit about how the genre of science fiction has been used in the past to get people thinking about what the future may hold. When did science fiction take off and how futures focused has it tended to be? Is it something that you recognise as futures thinking or do you see science fiction as something that's a a different endeavour from futures thinking? That's a really interesting question again and I think it's actually really difficult to answer as well. So just in terms of what you were saying there, one of the things that I think is most relevant of science fiction to futures thinking and where they align is obviously that there's a focus on the future that's going on, at least in terms of how we generally define the genre. So it's a brief history of science fiction I'll attempt to give you, but Hugo Gernsback really started science fiction back in 1926. You've obviously got authors operating and doing science fictional texts before that point, but it was really this American innovator, both in terms of electrical engineering and designing items, did like 80 patents or something like that over the course of his life. So he was very into science and technology. But then in 1926, he published this term, scientific fiction, by which he meant stories that are told through science or which use science. But one of the things he added to that definition was they had to have a prophetic vision. So really right back at the beginnings of when science fiction became defined as science fiction, it's got this link to the future. One of the problems, though, is because of Gernsback's background, the visions that he published, that he encouraged, were very technological, were very scientific. So science fiction as a genre kind of moves on from that. And around about the 1960s, 1970s, you get this thing called the new wave, and they buck this trend of it being about technology, and it's about society, and it's about identity. So they're still thinking about potential futures, a lot of them, but they're now far more concerned about who people are than the kit they have or the tech that they possess. And then you move on to something like cyberpunk, for instance. Um, William Gibson did a really interesting story uh, rejecting Gernsback's ideas called the Gernsback Continuum. He did that in 1981. And William Gibson has been really quite seminal in terms of thinking about the future and technology, but also about society. So one of the definitions of cyberpunk, it's a bit of a working definition, but it's high tech and low life. So it's how these kind of low life elements in the stories use advanced tech, how tech causes social stratification, that kind of thing. So that's a kind of takes us to the 80s, 90s. There are obviously loads more science fictional text and elements around that. But that's the kind of relationship with the future that we're talking about. But one of the things I think I'd really like to draw out in relation to science fiction and futures thinking is science fiction doesn't have to be about the future. Sometimes it's just set in the future. So it's a story that you might have told at any point in history, 
it just happens to be set 200 years away from when it's published. So there's a difference between stories set in a kind of imagined future that just want to tell interesting stories and stories that are about how we think about the future. So if that's the kind of production of science fiction, one of the things I think we can add to this, and this goes back to your question far more explicitly, is how I interpreted it anyway, is you're asking about how science fiction can be used to help audiences think about the future. And I think personally that that's really quite a recent development in science fiction. It's far more instrumental use of science fiction than you would normally get. A lot of science fiction writers just write science fiction. So using it to think about the future in a structured way is almost contemporaneous with the rise of this kind of um, futures literacy to a degree. So you've got something like um, the Strategic Defense Initiative in the United States under Reagan's administration. That was really informed by science fiction because a couple of science fiction writers had this idea and were really pushing this agenda. But it wasn't really used to think about the future. It was used to prompt a particular action in the present. So very much my opinion, but what's happening now is we're using science fiction far more as like a repository bank of potential futures to enable us to think about when it might turn out like that or it might turn out like that. So we're comparing and contrasting far more about science fictional futures. And we're also far more willing, and this ties into some of the work that Matthew's been doing, about using science fiction as a kind of imaginative scenario to get people thinking about the future. So it's not saying this is the world as it will be. It's a provocation. It's a way of sparking the imagination. So moving from this idea that science fiction has to be prophetic at its outset to it being actually a sort of way of visualising possibilities and options. I'm really fascinated by some of what you've said there, that in some science fiction, the future is more a landscape that the story inhabits than a focus for active exploration, but that there is this increasing trend and it's being instrumentalized more by military organizations, but other groups and interest groups too, instrumentalized as a way of thinking about the future in a structured way and as a thinking about the future for the present and in terms of what we then might do in the present. Can I just come back with another quick question, Will, which is just really to get a sense from you of how much science fiction has been focused on war and conflict. So future war is obviously a really big part of science fiction. So from War of the Worlds, one of the kind of earliest examples of it, to things like the Forever War by Joe Haldeman, Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. There's always been an element of dramatising conflict in a futuristic setting through science fiction. You've also got, and I wouldn't like to say when it began, but I would guess around about the 80s, 90s, this becoming formalised into something of a subgenre within science fiction. So rather than odd texts that authors might do, you actually get this subgenre called military science fiction. It uses a military conflict or a particular battle or operation as the setting through which it's exploring how soldiers operate, who the enemy is, what kind of tactics or technologies you use. So it's kind of hived off as a separate subgenre, military science fiction. But on the whole, I think we can recognise that science fiction has started to develop particular tools to think about military futures, if only because they serve as nice points of dramatic conflict. Mm -hmm. The bearing they have on the real world, I think, is far more debatable, and it depends very much on the author. 
Okay, that's very helpful. So some science fiction has developed an increasing interest in military futures, and indeed military organisations have developed an increasing interest in science fiction. And that brings us neatly on to Matt. So Matt, you've had a, a very long career in the armed forces, and lately you've been involved on the strategic side, scoping future challenges and responses. There is necessarily an awful lot of futures thinking in military circles, and lots of focus currently, for example, on cyber warfare or hybrid warfare. And in the UK, the recent development of Space Command as a new branch of the RAF focused on space security. We might talk about some of those specific developments at some point later. But first of all, can you just tell us a bit about how futures planning has tended to work in military circles and what kinds of tools the military uses to visualize the future? So at the risk of coming a little bit pessimist, you know, there's the old platitude that generals are always preparing for the last war. And people might, you know, point to examples from history where air power, trench warfare, and the machine gun were all filled in the 1860s. You know, you saw those indications during the Civil War uh, with the use of balloons to provide a, a strategic advantage. And most of that was ignored until World War One. And obviously, we saw the manifestations of how warfare had fundamentally changed. It's interesting when you look at the uh, development of air power, the first aircraft carriers date back really to the 1900s. And when I say 1900s, we're talking 1901, 1902 with uh, Samuel Langley doing his first experiments, trying to get his airplane to work prior to the Wright brothers was launching them from a boat. And then, you know, fast forward to folks like Billy Mitchell and at the risk of the wrath of uh, historical scholars that have studied this more, in 1924, he uh, wrote a report as a warning and basically said, hey, we got the strategic vulnerability. This attack could occur in Pearl Harbor and it'll occur at this time. And then you'll see a simul near simultaneous attack at Clark. And uh, it was actually used as evidence against him for his court martial a few years later. And uh, he was off by 25 minutes of when that attack would occur. And it was written almost 15 to 20 years in the past. So if you look at military's use of storytelling, you know, it, it has ebbed and flowed. And it's really interesting with hindsight being what it is, militaries always are trying to seek an area where they get advantage. They don't want to be surprised. They do want to, you know, be ahead of the competition because that's what the public is counting on. Now, I'm not saying that we're always ahead of it. There's certain truth to the platitude about uh, potentially being behind the power curve at times. But uh, storytelling has been an interesting technique that allows, you know, I say planning. It's not so much the short-term planning. It's more of the longer-term planning. Where do we visit ourselves 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future? And uh, that's sort of where this project has come in. And what's a little bit different about it is it's completely embracing the narrative device, as Will was saying and, and as Emily was saying, to explore futures that may not be. It, it's not a projection of where we want to be or necessarily where we will be. We're trying to focus less on the technology. You know, the technology is certainly there, the economics, the, the potentials for conflict are certainly there. But we're trying to focus on the human element. As we've developed this project, we're certainly getting there. But as we're on that future arc, some of those features are going to be desirable. Others will not be desirable. And uh, we found it's been a really good project thus far from a planning perspective, not so much in trying to come up with a plan and, and make that the future of the RAF, but rather connecting people who ordinarily wouldn't connect with the idea of what the future is. So like Emily's saying that there is a democratization of the technique. We're trying to get more people stimulated in the discussion. And as Will was saying, with the development of science fiction, you've seen the change, at least in my career. And, and again, looking at how do we use this device to, of fiction and narrative stories to bring people into human stories to sort of unpick and almost in a safe space, look at moral and ethical issues. So again, from a planning perspective, I don't know if this directly answers your question, Alice, but we're certainly trying to explore 
questions rather than answers, ideas rather than projections, people and what their potential challenges will be in the future rather than the technology that they have. You know, certainly it's present in some of the stories, but as we've gone through this project from edition one to now edition three, there's certainly been a shift more towards the human element away from the product catalog. And hopefully that comes through with a unique perspective. We're going to talk a lot more in detail about the RAF stories from the future, which you've got several editions now of out. But you've brought out some really fascinating things there that are helping me grasp what role storytelling futures literacy can play here in military planning, which is very much at the sort of macro level. As you say, it's about ideas, not prophecy or projection. And in a sense, it's, it's about world building, isn't it? So, you know, we can't build a world we haven't visualized and therefore visualization and imagination and creative thinking are an incredibly important part of that world building. And once you've, it's only once you've done world building that you can actually do that more micro planning and slot things in. And so, you know, I really like this idea that fiction is a safe space to do that and to ask more questions than it provides answers. Emily, I wonder if this is a good point actually to come back to you and, and just think a little bit more about narratives and storytelling specifically. I've seen the power of storytelling myself in an example of futures, futures thinking. I was at an event at the Scottish Parliament, which was about Scotland 2030. And one speaker stood up and talked a lot about what technology we are definitely going to have and how we will absolutely have entirely driverless buses and and drones will be dropping our Amazon parcels off right, left and centre. And then a woman stood up, um, a, a folk singer and a storyteller, and she told three stories about actually how people might find that in different walks of life. So one was a, a shopkeeper who was now replaceable by a machine and someone else who was a sort of a complete techno addict and so on. And you could really see the profound difference actually in those two approaches for getting you to visualize and question and so on. But I wonder if you can say a little bit more based on your research. So I know you've co-authored a paper which came out this year with Will and Genevieve exploring the particular role that narrative can help in helping us visualize and plan for the future. I think you talk about the storiness of futures thinking, that connection between storytelling and world building, something that really goes to the heart of the Visualizing War project because we're really interested in what stories do to us, how they shape our mindsets and our behaviors. So can you just take us through some of the arguments in that paper, perhaps, just telling us a bit more about what stories do for us in futures thinking? Yeah, of course, a great question. And I really loved your example of Scotland 2030. And what struck me immediately is that the storyteller told three stories, right? So it wasn't just getting up and saying, this is how the future is going to be. It was three possible futures. And I think drawing on, I suppose, what Matt and Will have already touched on already, what's important, I think, about good futures thinking is a plurality. It's about multiplicity. It's about multiple stories because there is no one future the future hasn't happened yet so we don't know what it's going to be like but having the, the kind of the multiplicity of stories is something that allows us to chink through different kind of possible permutations of what the future might be and thereby also thinking about Roy Amara's famous triad of multiple futures which is the possible the plausible and the preferable 
right? So how you frame the kind of futures that you're doing. And it sounded to me like that storyteller was doing something really interesting there, a story about something that was not a very preferable future for someone who was going to lose their job through automation. And then, you know, a, a preferable future for the techno fan. So that permutation and always understanding that one, how, how one future that, that may develop will be preferable for some and, and less than preferable for others. And I think that's what the multiplicity of, of storytelling helps us do with futures thinking is that, first of all, it provides us with the, the, the plurality which is necessary because we don't know how the future is going to unfold. But it also provides context um, and context is it's the really nice thing that the RAF stories do is that it's providing us with like you say a world and you cannot build a world without starting to say what do the chairs look like in this place you know what are people eating what languages do they speak what are their cultural touch points you know and it's something that struck me in the conversation about science fiction that you and Will were having earlier on as well. We often have, I think, in the West, this tendency, and this is not intended as a criticism at all to, to either of you, to think about sci-fi per se as if it's this one thing. But it's not. Um, in my day job, I teach German literature and culture, and I can sketch out a really different engagement and trajectory of, of speculative fiction in Germany partly because they lost the war. So anything that was speculative written after the Second World War was all about a revisitation and a working through of the trauma of National Socialism in Germany. So that kind of linguistic cultural specificity is also something that is always super important with what storytelling can do vis-a-vis -vis the future. So these are some of the main ideas that we flesh out in the paper that you mentioned. So Flint published paper in the International Journal Futures, which was called Futures Literacy Through Narrative. And in that paper, we, we try and sort of flesh out the, the particular role that narrative can play in developing futures literacy. So in the paper, we, we set out the importance of narrative in three ways. The first way is that it's important as a way of framing the future and also the, the techniques that we use to think about the future. Narrative is important in shaping the kinds of futures that we that we actually make and it's really useful in critiquing the types of futures that are out there and also the methods that we use to to shape futures. So yeah in the paper we offer then three examples one which focuses more on Genevieve's work which is about how narrative theory can help us understand the limitations of human imagination when it comes to futures thinking and then we look at one of my case studies where I'm doing character-led storytelling with a group of young people who adopt a different persona from their own selves in order to, to tell a possible story about the future. And there I'm interested in things of like agency, power to actually shape a story, but also things like empathy and how that affects the way that we think about people in the future. And then we look at how speculative fiction reveals the importance of context in futures thinking. Thank you. Again, some really interesting things coming out. I'm really struck by some of the things you said about pattern recognition and storytelling. So our entire existence is storied, isn't it? And this is something that really goes to the heart of the Visualising War project. We're interested in how war stories work, but also what they do to us, because we're always constructing our reality through storytelling. It's a, there's a constant feedback loop between narrative and reality. And so I'm really interested in what you say about the pattern recognition. As we study it in the Visualising War project, 
um, patterns, sometimes patterns of storytelling about war can reinforce our habits of visualizing war, our habits of identifying heroic behavior, our habits of identifying certain people as successful leaders, um, our habits of prosecuting conflict or indeed peace building. But what you've said there about context is I suppose the key to unlocking that, you know, earlier, I think we were talking about the fact that the imagination allows us to do sort of macro planning, but the context re requires us also to look at the micro level, because as you say, you, you're building a whole world. So you have to know what the chairs look like, or you have to know exactly how they are in relation to the tables or whatever it might be. And so it's in that detail, isn't it? I suppose that, that you can then break those habits and question the patterns and so on. And then this character led storytelling that requires you actually to think about your role in that world as well. So Matt, I think this might be a good moment just to dive a bit more into these RAF stories from the future, which you've been working on for the past year. So it's a project which has involved the whole RAF community, I think, with people invited to imagine themselves 20 years from now and to write fictional stories about, sorry, what the RAF might be like, what people in the RAF might be doing. Can you tell us a bit about how the project came about and also what it's aiming to do? So when we started this project about a year ago, it, it's an example of a serendipity. We didn't intend to start a four-volume digest of this speculative fiction, you know, sort of subgenre. We were tasked to come up with a vignette, and it was just our team. It was five people to go out on a seeming benign directive that I, I'm not. I don't want to belittle it by any stretch, but it was really a sting to get people into reading the directive. You know, why is this directive uh, of interest and why should you take the time? Well, we'll put a little vignette on the, on the cover. But what's interesting about the project is we shared it. We shared it with friends and we didn't put any strings on it. So it's like, hey, take a peek at it. Tell me what you think about it. Feel free to share it. This is just going to go on a, a covering note. It's just going to be a vignette. We're going to pick one of these. And what was interesting is none of those friends sort of shared it as a butt of a joke. You know, so that was a big concern when we first started out is, are people going to laugh at us? Because it is on the fringes of what you think military would be doing in terms of writing a story. But what was interesting about it, and we didn't realize it until it occurred, is there was a few hops around. So someone would forward it and then forward it and then forward it. And then people would seek us out and we didn't get any feedback on the stories. What we ended up getting is, hey, I read the story. It was interesting. It was good. It was bad. You know, benign comment. And then it was did you think about this dot, dot, dot? It got me thinking, have you talked to these people? I think they might be interested in it. So we realized at the time is like, wow, there's something powerful with using this narrative device. Even though it was never our intent, there was no boilerplate. Hey, read this story. Tell us what you think. What, what thoughts does it have? It just sort of had that effect. It, it was really interesting. And as we worked through it, you know, we don't have a lot of bureaucracy between us and the chief. We started sharing some of that feedback. And fortunately, we had a, a leadership team that was willing to take some risk on the, on the approach. And you know, I, I sat down with the, the CAS, the chief of air staff, um, a, a few months back. And the comment was, you know, is just a story. At the time, it was Air Marshal Ian Gale sitting in the ACAS role, so the assistant chief of staff. And, and he actually wrote a story. And then he was chatting around and it became an office challenge. And then a uh, warrant officer of the REF, he wrote a story. And then the CAS like, hey, I'm not going to be outdone by my team. He actually used it as sort of the mechanism that he gave his Rusi speech, Trenchard lecture. And he envisioned himself being the CAS in, in 2040. And we corresponded the launch date with that. We were surprised because as although the staff is very small, some of the work is unintentionally compartmentalized. Um, so the, the development of the speech was separate from the, uh, the stories in the future we found out. And we uh, decided that we would share that. So we launched edition one back in January. And it was featured on the Inside Air podcast in February of 2021, in which Kaz talked about trying to challenge the air cadets 
uh, which is roughly over 30,000 individual cadets across the UK, to write a story to create their future. And needless to say, we ran that competition from March to April, and we got some phenomenal stories from them. And thus far for the project, we got to four editions planned. Three of them are out. They are very much focused on by, with, and through. It's a completely volunteer effort. It's not a writing competition. It's not a story competition. We are trying to seek out people that have good ideas, we're certainly sharing with them some research to inform their stories as they, as they write them. So we got regular force, the reserve force, we got civilians, contractors, families, and friends all helping out with the stories and the, and the artwork. What I get by all this is it's opened up a lot of doors. We've had some collaboration with DEFRA because of the stories in the future of the Environment Agency. And it's all causing us to sort of reflect, I don't say on ourselves, but where do we need to be in the future, where our potential challenges are going to be. And really asking fundamental questions about what is the operating environment going to be like? How will society change? You know, how is the RAF going to be put into a mission? And what relationships are going to be like between society in the RAF within government? And our last edition, which hopefully will come out after this podcast airs, you know, we're looking at the implications of jobs, training and equipment. And we got some wonderful stories lined up for that. But like I said earlier, at the end of the day, they're just a story. They are not a agreed upon future. They are a device that is trying to get people to have thoughts uh, and engage with people who ordinarily wouldn't pick up, much like your Scottish Parliament example. How many people interacted with this is what it's going to be like versus the three stories? Well, we're finding out that people like a story. Like I said, we got four editions uh, total planned, and we'll see where it takes us next. But it's certainly going to be a more public discussion in the future going forward. Clearly lots of momentum then. I mean, you said at one point, and you mean it, it's just a story insofar as it's not a prediction that, you know, the stories that you're putting out are not a prediction. But at the same time as saying it's just a story, you're illustrating the power of story. I love the fact that, you know, when you started, the idea was that you'd use storytelling actually to make a directive a bit more palatable. You know, it's an age old trick, isn't it? That there are texts in the ancient world, you know, philosophy texts where the author says, I'm going to write this in poetry and myth because it's a bit like a doctor putting honey around the cup of an unpleasant medicine and then you'll read the philosophy inside it um, and so this idea that you know it started out with the story as the thing that would perhaps make people not sigh and and put the directive to one side but the power of the storytelling since as you say to ask big questions but not only to ask big questions to engage all sorts of people in wrestling with those big questions that's really the power of it and it's very interesting to hear that you're now experimenting with formats with video versions with animated graphics and so on and, and not just just text on the page. So Matt, I wonder if you can actually give us a short description of one of the stories from edition one. Maybe you can talk us through the story Second Light and then perhaps Emily and Will can pull out some of it, the storytelling features of it. The Second Light was a first edition and we really tried to tackle some questions. And again, you can see the evolution. So I'll talk about Second Light, but you can see in edition two and edition three stories, there's been an evolution on some of the thoughts. And I think at the end, we postulated two questions looking at degradation of some of our technology. What does it mean to war fighting? We also looked at some of the autonomy issues with artificial intelligence and how that played in with the force structure and tried to draw people into this story where our satellites have been denied to us. So we're now launching this reserve capability called the uh, high altitude hail, sort of a pseudo satellite replacement to allow us to connect in and uh, thwart off an attack. So that's sort of the basic genesis behind the story. My contribution on that one is we're really trying to draw people into the people's side of the story. So trying to come up with the backstory with the main character, the protagonist in it, and uh, sort of flushing her out. And uh, can I imagine this person existing in the future? Again, there's been a lot of movement since that first edition, but that was sort of our intent behind Second Light. 
So Second Light, it starts with a reference to climate change. It mentions that. So that's quite an interesting element of context instantly. There's sort of intense drought. And we also see a bit more context in that the main character is enjoying, you know, some downtime with a holographic singer uh, entertaining them. So we're immediately getting kind of some technological context. But then there's this sort of work call that comes in, report to your squadron immediately. And there's some kind of threat that's taking place in space. So we're in space warfare. And the protagonist comes to the squadron, there's biorecognition, there are drones flying around, there are remotely piloted systems, radar, very complex comm systems, there's AI that's reading the threats that are out there and actually help guiding the human decision making. So absolutely, this story is asking interesting questions about the role of humans, about the role of humans actually flying aircraft still, but in collaboration with AI. And it ends also with a reference to 1940, the Battle of Britain. So there's a really fascinating sort of sense of continuity somehow, as well as dramatic radical change. And at the end of every story you set these questions so a couple of the questions at the end of this one are how will we ensure resilience for our future space capabilities that's very much a question that the RF will want to wrestle with also what challenges can you see with autonomous AI operations and so on so lots to think about there but Will I wonder if you can start sort of teasing out what this fictional story is doing for its readers primarily in the RAF but a little bit beyond in helping us visualize the future Well, I think one of the things it does really interestingly, and this is what all good speculative fiction should do, ideally, is it manages to convey a sense of familiarity and a sense of disconnection or unfamiliarity at the same time. So there are certain elements in the story, well, any audience can recognise, but an RAF audience would especially recognise, like being called up for deployment or something like that. So there are certain actions that are everyday as far as the RAF are concerned, but then superimposed on top of that, you have these occasional neologisms like QC, which means a quantum compass. But first time it's presented, I believe it's just called QC. So the reader at that point is going, what's a QC? I don't know what a QC is. And then you find out later on, it's a quantum compass. But you still don't get told what the quantum compass is. So it leaves quite a lot of imaginative space there for you to go, what is a quantum compass? What might it look like? How might it enable things? So as much as the story is really very tightly circumscribed in terms of its plot, for want of a better expression, this is somebody being recalled from time off, going immediately into deployment. There's a lot around it that we don't know. For instance, we don't know who the antagonists are. And if you're going to ask an interesting question about the future, you've got this gesture back to there's going to be another Battle of Britain, which opens a grand vista of warfare. But we don't know who the antagonist is. And so you can start to go, who might this antagonist be? How do they have this capability to get rid of our space satellites? So it starts from very closely circumscribed parameters that a reader will recognise and opens up a whole load of questions. And that's the real power of the story here, I think. Emily, do you want to come in there as well? So Will's pulled out some really interesting things about the details you're given, the imaginative space that's still there. What else do you want to pull out from this particular story? I think what I would like to pick out is some elements about the characterization. So this is a story that's told in the third person. And the central protagonist, Olivia, is, first of all, a woman Wow, this is really interesting to me to read all of the stories that have come out and to see just how much kind of gender parity and how much interest in cultural differences through names. So this is a possible future of, of the RAF, which I think is one that is more gender balanced. And there seems to be also a variety of different cultural backgrounds that are coming through in the characters. 
And so first of all, I think I'd like to just say kudos that this is not a kind of a white male <laughs> vision of a techie future. And what we have in this particular story, Second Light, is it's an overcoming the monster kind of archetypal narrative. And we are immediately put into a potential peril situation with this character whom the writer or the creator of this piece has dropped little nuggets of affect and emotion into the story, like excitement, the little tingle as she's about to get into her, her vehicle because she loves flying, the sense of camaraderie with her colleague because they turn up late, the obvious admiration that's coming through for the 32-year-old female wing commander who gives them the brief about the mission, you know, then the uncertainty and the fear as she ends up going on. To so these moments of affect, I think, are vital in humanizing this character and, and doing the job that Matt has outlined so, so clearly. I think that those moments of affect, human emotion, are there really to kind of promote a sense of identification and empathy on the part of the reader. So not only are we imagining what Will has outlined there in this kind of, we're trying to understand the world and, and kind of get over this, this feeling of familiarity and also estrangement, but the vehicle that we can use to overcome that is this very clearly sketched character for such a short piece with whose emotions we can link up. And I think that's one of the powerful things about this story. And it, I suppose it goes back to what Will was saying as well about the elements of familiarity, the way in which you can identify with a sort of recognisable leisure activities and emotions and so on that then help us actually continue to engage as they're placed in a very unusual and extraordinary situation. And so that sort of carries us with them on that emotional journey. I'm really interested by what you've just pulled out as well about the sort of the way in which stories do draw on archetypal kind of building blocks so an archetypal peril story or these sort of these these storytelling techniques and so on serve a great purpose but can be used and deployed in so many different ways to tell really different stories so Matt we've just been looking at a story then from the first edition and I'm struck by the introduction to the first edition of RAF stories from the future because it really drives home just how fast the pace of changes and the urgency actually of futures thinking this is fun it's engaging but there's you get a real sense that it's urgent as well and it's urgent not just for strategists but for everyone so for example you you really do address a kind of wide readership you say you ask for example in the introduction could an RAF recruit in 19 at the collapse of the Soviet Union, have foreseen operating a UAV from RAF Waddington over Helmand province in 2014. You ask a series of questions like that. It's very clear from that introduction that you really do want the whole RAF community to be stimulated by these stories, these questions are posed directly to the reader. You know, at the end, you come back and say, do these people resonate with you? Can you imagine your future self in these situations? And that responsibility that everyone has in shaping the future is really stressed, I think, through that. You talk about, we hope this story makes you think and chat with your colleagues about the future of the RAF. And you actually say at the end, when we pause to think what the next generation may hold, we must realize that our actions today are what will get us there. And I suppose that comes back to what we've talking about, that futures planning is about 
the present. It's about what we're doing in the present. So I suppose my question then is, to, to what extent are, are these RAF stories from the future a recognition almost that it shouldn't just be down to a handful of technical experts to plan and to visualise future conflict, but that we all have the capacity and the responsibility to, to visualise and indeed engender some kind of shared future? It's really perceptive that you picked up on the handful of experts and how we're trying to democratize or crowdsource the creation of stories, crowdsource the discussions that we have based on the stories. I think there's a lot of speculation right now that the pace of change is faster than it was in the past. I don't know if that's actually true. I'm certainly that would be a, a really interesting academic debate. I will say that our perception of the pace of change, we always feel like we're behind the power curve or missing something. What's the next best thing? But if you look back to movies like Back to the Future, when it was written, sort of forecasting out 15, 20 years, and it's fun to pick apart everything that that movie got wrong. But if we look back 20 to 30 years from present day, does it feel like it's changed that much? You know, you look at the development of the iPhone when that got released or development of social media, and we're talking things that are less than 15 years old. So I would argue that there is a concern and the people that are going to see that are the people that aren't necessarily in leadership positions right now. They're the kid that just joined, that's got the next best, greatest idea, but he doesn't have a voice or she doesn't have a voice, or she comes from a different background and hasn't been listened to before. How do we draw that discussion out of them? So I guess the sense of urgency with the stories is trying to make a story that you can project yourself into, maybe your offspring into, or just seeing as, as plausible. So you know, some of it is is blue sky thinking, you know, some of it is almost you don't want to see yourself in that future. And so we've gone through that. But uh, there is a sense of urgency in the fact that we just don't know, you know, it, and we've said it in some of our other work that we're not going to predict the future right. We can't. So why try? Let's come up with this arc of what a plausible future is. And there's certainly a desirable future, like like Emily said, you know, preferred future. So let's make some stories around the periphery of what those possible or plausible futures are and, and explore that a little bit and do that with a sense of urgency and really ask some questions about what the radical changes could be, the disruptive events. I look at the COVID situation that we lived with in the past two years. That's in some of the projections. That wasn't a surprise. It was a surprise in the timing, but the surprise of having some type of global pandemic, that shouldn't have existed. We thought it was going to be the flu. To, uh, you know, who knew? People are given those thoughts. So how do we connect them with a the story? How do we draw that out of people and do that at a fast enough that we can stay ahead of the power curve to be there when we're expected? Because, you know, as representing defense and the RAF at this point, we have a job to do and it's to protect the security of the United Kingdom and its interests abroad. And, you know, we focus a lot on the defense, but there's also, when you said the environmental themes, what are the ramifications of that security environment? And it's really causing us to question what some of the roles are. And it's one of the reasons we're having conversations with DEFRA and the Environment Agency, because there's a threat to the rest of society. So that geopolitical shift, there is a sense of urgency. Seeing the frequency of storms shift, that is causing a friction point that we are going to be tasked to deal with. And it might be directly with humanitarian assistance, or it could be dealing with the fact that people are going to be displaced and we have to house them quickly. I think that segue is really nice into my next question for Emily actually so you've just started to sketch Matt there 
the increasing overlap, we've often in the past thought of military and civilian military and social political spheres as, as separate. But, you know, you've just brought up the environment as actually an issue that challenges absolutely all of us and is going to require an awful lot of collaboration to deal with. So in some ways, some of the military will be on the front line of it, but all sorts of other people too. And so, Emily, the RAF stories from the future, they're obviously aimed primarily at people in the RAF, or they were to start with. I know that Matt's interested in expanding the audience and their reach. But do you think they have a bigger role to play in getting society at large, not just to visualise future conflict, but to recognise that they have a part to play in visualising future conflict, that as voters, as members of civic society, that actually this is something that we all could be wrestling with. I know that the Flint project is really interested in broadening the kinds of people involved in policymaking precisely by using storytelling as a tool. So it'd just be interesting to hear your views on that, that potential wider scope and the broader impact that this kind of futures literacy and these RAF stories from the future can have. Sure, yeah, it's a really important question. So first of all, I think that I would just say that in general, Flint's work with various government agencies there's a really clear drive being expressed from those agencies to work more with community groups, the general public. But it's really difficult because the institutions have not historically been set up that way. And there are a lot of kind of the ethical issues at stake, but also some major fears about what if things get picked up incorrectly by the media? You know, how is this going to make us look, etc, etc. So Within the various future communities of practice that we work with in government, that vision and that perception of the need to be democratising futures is there. What I'm seeing is the still the institutional sort of obstacles to, to doing that in a kind of a joined up way. And I'm hopeful that we'll get there because I do a lot of this kind of futures literacy storytelling stuff with um, young adults and children and in particular I've been working with Generation Z, those who are between the ages of eight or nine up to early 20s at the moment and these are the people as Matt said who are going to be bearing the brunt I think of the really difficult parts of our possible, some might say probable future vis-a-vis -vis the climate crisis and in my work with them the main piece of feedback that I have got is how much they have appreciated actually someone sitting down with them and asking them about the future and how empowering I think is the, is the right word how empowering that process is for them first of all there is a researcher out there who is actually quite interested in how they think about the future and then other types of feedback is coming through about there's sort of two outcomes. The first is that at the end of these kind of workshops, people go away sort of feeling empowered and um, slightly more positive about the future because of the process of storytelling and uh, understanding kind of how futures are framed and context and all of those things I've been talking about before. But it's interesting that often when, when I start workshops, the main thing that they're saying about the future is how scared they are of the future. So two reasons why you know we need to be doing more futures literacy work with young people first of all we need a multiplicity of voices um to in order to shape the preferable futures that that you know we need to have and the second is that you know i think it might be a mitigating factor 
in relation to the mental health crisis that we're, we're seeing at the moment amongst uh, particularly Generation Z, children and young adults, where they're feeling completely disenfranchised and disempowered in relation to the future, um, looking ahead at, at what might be about to happen. And so actually actively doing such workshops with them is a nice way of helping them to kind of feel that agency in relation to the future is actually possible for them. So that the future doesn't just happen to them, but is something that they can have some input in. What you're saying there, Emily, really resonates with what, in fact, our first podcast guest talked about. It was Lady Lucy French, who runs the charity Never Such Innocence. And that is an organisation that gives children and young people a voice on conflict. And it conflict, war, security, defence one of those subjects which we've often assumed that only adults should really talk about or have a view on partly because some of it's technical partly because some of it's secret um, but also because it's so very very serious Uh, but what we're hoping is that the final podcast in our series will actually bring some of the competition winners um, who've submitted entries through Never Such Innocence to the podcast to tell us what they think future conflict might be like what peace building might be like as well and as you say actually involving children and young people in that process of imagination that process of visualization is so important for so many reasons it makes the future less scary but it also it's that diversity of voices and that diversity of perspectives that has a hell of a lot to teach us as adults yeah I wanted to kind of develop something that Emily said in relation to what you asked as well in relation specifically to these um, RAF stories and about the widening of audience. So recently I published a piece in the conversation about militaries plundering science fiction for technological ideas and admittedly that verb is slightly contentious but you know just go with it for now. That was written off the back of a report done by the Ministry of Defence's Defence Concepts and Doctrine Centre about human augmentation And within that report, what they're basically crying out for is a discussion, almost a social discussion, not just a policy discussion, about the role of human augmentation in society and in the military. So if these stories enable the general public, whatever the general public might look like or call itself, to engage with these kind of questions, this is going to be really important for our future because these things are coming down the line but we don't know what they look like and we still have a chance to shape them. So this is why we need this discussion. So of whatever age, we should definitely be talking about this, I think. Absolutely. Matt, you know, one of the big issues that's coming down towards us, as Will's just put it, of course, is one you've just mentioned, climate change. And that is one of the topics which your second edition of RAF Stories from the Future touches on, along with other really huge issues. So this second edition, it, its stories are a little bit darker, aren't they? And, and and it does wrestle with issues well beyond AI and space warfare. So climate change, the importance of working across different sectors to address future threats, wider social and political factors. I wonder if you can just give us a quick flavour of that second edition and what you're hoping to do with that second edition. I would say edition one was an experiment. It was an experiment in the fact that we had stories, we realized we had something and it was like, we got to get this out. We got to get this conversation started. There's goodness in it. Editions two, three, and four are a little bit measured in the fact that we're trying to incorporate sort of a big theme, if you will, with each edition. So edition two, and it's impossible to explore a channelized theme. You're going to hit all the different themes, but edition two was an exploration of the future operating environment. Um, So all the stories are trying to dock into what the future operating environment is. So in addition to you see the story with with heads together, 
it, and this is a plot spoiler, so you know, warn the listen listeners to, to pause the podcast, go go read heads together because I'm going to reveal the twist. But uh, all the principal parts of that technology exist today, and it's really you're having a discussion with yourself, your your past self, your future self, dead friends, and we try to get into some of the questions of you know, is this use of the technology morally right? What happens if you can have a, a movie star or a popular cultural influencer in your pocket? It's just an AI representation with a which an avatar that's photorealistic, uh, and they give you advice and tell you to do something. Are you liable as the actual individual to that advice? So there's a lot of questions we try to unpick, but again, it's looking at the technology aspect of some of the, the future environment. Uh, in the lungs of the earth story, we looked at that Gen Z concept of is climate change going to be a reason that people are going to want to serve in the first place? Is access to medical care because you're in defense? And can you have a pre-existing disability and have a role in defense? If we can either adapt it to sort of the cognitive diversity element of it or, a, you know, human augmentation to mitigate the effect and, and, and use individuals as a deployable asset so they can, you know, answer their calling or dream in the, in the lungs of the earth story. In Strike, we look at uh, some of the legal ramifications of the urbanization of the world and the challenges that presents when we start talking about risk appetite in public discussion and, and what's right with that. So again, it's, it's posing more questions than, than answers. And then arguably one of the more challenging stories to read, but salient very much for today, the whole idea of the media block just really exploring some of the information warfare issues and how information warfare may be used by our adversaries to unsettle. You know, as Will was saying, you know, we didn't advance everything in the story, certain elements of the story, because we wanted to provide a familiar linkage to say what the information environment is going to be like in that future operating environment. Edition three, and you got the opportunity to read those stories, we're starting to unpick some of the roles and relationships between the RAF defense, society, why people serve, some different perspectives of some of the future operating environment again. So again, it's impossible to separate it. And uh, so the stories are focused around that, but we also flip it. And I think we'll appreciate it that in addition, in three, we have a story that's currently the view of the computer, the AI as the individual. So again, it's, it's about the diversity of viewpoints and really drawing the reader into different ideas uh, when we start talking roles and relationships and, and how that ties in. And some of them are morally ambiguous. The working title, which is going to be changed for the final edition, uh, we're dealing with use of RAF satellite capacity to look at climate change. So again, the climate change theme is coming up. We certainly see that, at least a lot of our creators see that as an issue that we're going to have to wrestle with, that security environment. What are we going to be doing 20 years from now? We feel that that is going to be very unsettling. So there's still going to be the strategic competition elements but there's also going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to be dealing with that's going to be driven by failure to adapt and failure to mitigate countries and land masses and populations for the effects of climate change. And we're going to be dealing with that. So plausibly use space-based resources, uh, yes. But uh, that particular story really tackles some of the legal and ethical issues of can we and should we and what sovereign territory is in space. So hopefully that gives a little bit of insight into the roadmap of where Edition 2 went, where Edition 3 went. And like you said, they are a little bit darker. We're not trying to make a dystopian future. Again, it's the plausible and, and possible futures. But we certainly, after the first edition, really went back and did our homework and said, things don't have to be perfect in the future. Let's make this a little bit more plausible for people to read and challenge people in the reality that they expect to see. But uh, we certainly got some glimmers of hope in there as well with some different vantage points with some of our authors.
Yeah, absolutely. It's thought provoking rather than depressing, for sure. And I think one of the real strengths of this sort of growing collection, these series of editions, is the plurality that Emily has talked about a little bit. The fact that these stories sit alongside each other and present all these alternatives. And it's that, that, you know, they're not necessarily directly connected with each other, but together as a collection, they look at future aspects of defence and security from so many different angles, from the perspective of who is going to be serving and why, all the way through to ethical questions about our very identity, might the technology pose, and uh, you know all these sort of huge global challenges that we kind of know are heading our way, but that we that we really need actually to look closer at as a way of grappling with it. Talking of one of those huge challenges, back to climate change. Will, Matt's already mentioned one of the stories from addition to the lungs of the earth. I wonder if you can just give our listeners a quick flavour of, of that story from addition to. So lungs of the earth is a story I find really interesting in terms of how it handles climate change, because without giving too much away, it's about the Amazon rainforest and the rainforest as being the lungs of the earth. But it asks to what extent, say, Western democracies have the right to intervene in that area to protect the lungs of the earth. So I find it a really interesting take on the notion of military interventions and when we make military interventions, because currently we think about them in terms of doing humanitarian aid or peacekeeping or the darker side of things like regime change. There's a concern about that. But this is a military intervention that's intended to save humanity as a whole. And and who are you stopping from doing that? So I think it asks really interesting questions about how individual nations and their armed forces can engage with the global issue of climate change. I think it also touches quite nicely on something I already mentioned, which was about human augmentation, because it brings in prosthetics technologies and a divide between what you get through the NHS and what you get via the military. So assuming that the NHS exists, then it's like there's a two tier system, potentially. So the social integration of those technologies. There was one thing that I would draw out, which was, I would call an issue with it. It's not a criticism with it, but it's an issue with it, because I think it raises some interesting questions. And that's about the way in which it assumes a certain um, misinformation campaign triggers the conflict. And it kind of sets it up as good side versus evil side. And it has to do that because of the length of the story and to just get the reader there and to explain what they're doing to explore that scenario. But I think there's potential there for a little more cultural relativism um, and uh, or considering the nature of how different actors might do different things, but they're always going to feel justified in terms of what they do. So like I said, not criticism so much as an issue that it triggered for me. You hit one of the the key challenges that we had. We try to engineer the stories, if you will, to be about five minutes of duration to consume them five to six minutes. And uh, it's really interesting you point up on that because we thought some of the NHS issues are going to be more controversial, the moral relativism, the potential. So there's a lot of things when you start unpicking the stories. Some of them are deliberate. Sometimes uh, I don't say they're less than deliberate. They're omissions based on the fact that we only have about five minutes of time with you to enjoy the story. But uh, those are all, I hate to say, valid points in terms of what type of discussion we want to have with the stories. And, you know, if you were in the RAF and, you know, putting your uniform on and, and having that conversation, that's exactly the effect that we want is, hey, did you see this in this story? You know, what about this? I, I saw this and I'm not, I don't know if I agree with this. And we've achieved the effect that we wanted to have. 
And you just said there, Matt, that you've only got five, you know, these stories are designed to be consumed in five minutes. Um, but in that five minutes, just imagine, so I'm just thinking back to my um, Scottish Parliament analogy, um, you could have a, a, a talk for five minutes, let's say, about, uh, um, you know, what would effectively a talk about the just war argument. What is a justification for a military intervention? Um, and would it be justified to do a major military intervention in order to protect the lungs of the earth, in order to protect the rainforests? And that talk would probably focus exclusively on that one issue for five minutes. But in the space of a sort of five minute story, you've managed to bring in so many other issues. So that, again, is just the power of that storytelling to visualize. It comes back to what we've talked about, this sort of context, the world building that the story allows you to do, because you can't only talk about the just war, the, mil the justification of a military intervention. If you're telling a story, you've got to bring in who's doing what, who are they, where are they, why are they, you know, what kind of physical fitness do they have and all sorts of other things. Emily, I wonder if you could just give us a flavour of one more story, the story Strike, which I really enjoyed from edition two. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed this one too. It is sort of a quest narrative, going back to our thinking about archetypal narrative forms. And we join in the third person. So again, this is a third person narrative. But this is a quest narrative in a very clearly kind of disaggregated world of actors where conflict fronts are no longer clear cut. So we have our protagonist, Bobby, who is needing to actually be on the ground in order to introduce a piece of malware, I think it is a cyber malware, in order to neutralise a, seems to be a non-state actor, but we're not quite clear again who this antagonist is, but somebody who has managed to cause severe disruption in the finance world and also in terms of civil unrest through their actions on, on the internet or the version of the internet that exists in this future. What is compelling, I think, about this story is that we're, we're in this world of, of high technology. So there are drones and there are small aircraft that can come and pick this person up if it gets too, um, uh, too dangerous and there's AI integrated in her glasses and all of this stuff is there. But what I think is really quite poignant about this story is that despite this mass of technology and augmentation, there's this wonderful phrase that they use. This character says, we still need warm bodies. We still need boots on the ground. And I think that was beautifully put because you've got all of this techie setup and she's got this very affectionate relationship with her own AI that she's given. She's anthropomorphized, right? So she's calling her AI Susie. But we are nonetheless put narratively in the, the warm body of someone in an extremely vulnerable situation as they try and affect this link up with the antagonist's tech and disarm them and also neutralize them as a threat. So this vulnerability or the continued vulnerability of human warm bodies in this potential future of such immense technological capability, I think asks some really important questions because we, we tend to think that increased technology is going to mean fewer casualties. And I think this story asks questions about whether that's actually, you know, going to be the case if we continue along this front. So we follow this character, Bobby, as they manage to do the link up, but it comes at the cost. There's a potential life-threatening moment in the story that 
she gets discovered halfway through. So she gets um, the surveillance picks her up and control says, no, you can't you can't stop the link up. You have to stay there. We will come and, and emergency lift you out of that place, but you can't go dark. So she's standing there in the building opposite, you know, at a moment of potential death and continues to do her job. And she does her job and she does escape. And it is a successful outcome to the story. But I think this kind of little tiny fragment of a story that manages to show great technological accomplishment, but at the same time, the ongoing vulnerability of warm bodies, I think is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely one of the things that struck me about it. And and the insistence in many of these stories, actually, of having those warm bodies, but also having multiple warm bodies and dialogue, sometimes between a warm body and AI, but sometimes actually between multiple real people. And again, it's those real people and those real voices that allows the narrative then actually to show us not just vulnerability, but subjectivity. The fact that a different person and indeed a different AI system will interpret a situation or its dangers or whatever slightly differently. And leading on from that, I find it fascinating that it it enables dialogue. So it enables you to hear how one person characterizes a situation relative to how another person and the euphemisms like neutralize, for example, just picking up one of the words you used, Emily, the euphemisms that are or are not used and, and that sort of multiplicity of voices helps us question, I suppose, some of the euphemisms or at least pay attention to them and and be aware of them. Um, I think one thing that I'm really fascinated by, um, Will's brought it up a couple of times actually, so I might get Will to answer this question, is the blurriness of the antagonists in some of these stories. And while you were talking a little bit earlier, Will, about how we don't always know who the antagonist is, they're sort of slightly shadowy figure or organisation or whatever. That got me thinking actually about a novel that we talked about on the podcast a while ago with author Harry Parker. It's a fictional account of actually that, that resembles his real life experiences in Afghanistan. Um, So it's called Anatomy of a Soldier and he, he writes a fictional story precisely so that he can put across the side of the antagonist. He didn't know the antagonists at the time. He didn't know the people on the other side, the, the, you know, the people he was doing counterinsurgency against. Um, but so he, he fictionalizes his experiences so that he can write half the book, roughly speaking, from their point of view. So they are a very well-defined, they are sketched out in quite some detail who they are. And that means that you find it quite hard as you read through the book. You can't see the conflict purely from Harry's point of view or Harry's fictional character. So I was just wondering, Will, why are you worried about the blurriness of some of these antagonists? Is it because if they were sharper, we might be asked even harder questions, perhaps, or we might feel even more uncomfortable about some of the scenarios? My sense, certainly when you talk about narrative for futures work, is if you define the enemy, people will assume that is the enemy, more or less. So you have two almost representational strategies when dealing with an antagonist. One is to do what sounds like a really interesting strategy that you just described, which is to actually put yourself into the antagonist and show that they are somebody too, that they have their own motivations. So it's not the good versus evil thing. It's the two conflicting or competing ideologies or ways of approaching the world or belief systems, whatever you want to call them. The other one is to leave the antagonist unknown. One of the things I think is really fascinating about the future is that it is by definition unknown, and that's what scares us. So half the future's work is all about trying to categorise, to define, to control, to 
pin down this thing that we don't know is what might happen. So by having the antagonists being an unknown enables this act of imaginative projection, which in turn enables you to potentially query, why am I assuming it's that person, not this person? Why couldn't it be somebody who's actually an ally now? And it just enables you to really start unpacking all of your assumptions and doing it that way. So I think, yeah, you have two choices. You either humanize, for want of a better term, the antagonist or make them unknown. But I think the danger is in defining the antagonist, but then not doing anything with their perspective. And that's interesting, but you're absolutely right that defining the antagonist can sometimes work against the creativity and the space for thinking that futures literacy opens up, because immediately we want to put a name in a face and then start building our assumptions around it. And and that can shut down our imagination rather than open it up. Matt, can I just come back to you? So in the introduction to your various editions, there's often a dictionary definition of fic-int, which you've mentioned already, fictional intelligence, useful fiction, a meld of narrative and non-fiction. And it's not a genre that's as well known as science fiction, but is fic-int an increasingly recognised genre? I know it's advocated by, for example, the academic and military strategist Peter Singer, who uses a sort of a blend of factual research and engaging storytelling in many of his books like Ghost Fleet, a novel for the next world war. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about how fic-int differs from science fiction, but also Maybe give us one or two other examples of thick ink that are gaining traction or that perhaps have influenced your project. You know, at, at the risk of getting the wrath of Will on the call and the risk of copyrights too. Peter Singer and August Cole, who are both credited on Ghost Fleet and Burn In and a few other books uh, with their, their collaborations they've done, and basically said this speculative fiction, I, I would almost argue it's a subgenre of science fiction. And truth and disclosure, we're not talking about reality today. We're speculating the future and then we're blending in some of the trends that we're seeing, the trends, the signals, the drivers, the the stuff that we're doing our horizon scanning, which projects us into a future that doesn't exist today. So by that stretch, and and I have to say this very quietly on the podcast, is effectively science fiction. The reason we're trying to sort of distance ourselves a little bit from science fiction is because some people are prejudiced um, with the term. I got to be careful to say never, but uh, I don't anticipate in the four planned editions of stories in the future that we're going to be addressing aliens or interstellar travel or any of the other popular subgenres of science fiction. And we wanted to stay clear of that. You know, it's sort of a, a careful little niche market where we're trying to get the largest amount of readers to pick up the stories in the future, but not be turned off on the fact that it, you know, it's so incredibly fanciful that the people don't think it exists. And it's interesting with the thicket genre of what Singer and Cole have done, it reads like an academic paper. Everything is footnoted and documented. And we didn't necessarily want to truly embrace that format. Now, some of our stories, when they come in their draft form, they have that level of sophistication. When we did Media Block and some of our other stories with uh, looking at the AI and other elements are, again, two to three to four pages of, of, of references that are going with it. So they're extremely well-researched. But I would say that's not dissimilar from a, a any type of process a good speculative fiction author would do. I think the creative twist is that we're maturing technologies um, into what their logical conclusion may be. So our, our authors and creators are given the, the liberty to invent a future that doesn't exist. So yeah, I guess by definition, that would make it a science fiction, but we're, we're trying to distance ourselves a little bit away from calling it science fiction. 
what makes it a challenge is we're also, like I previously said, we're trying to embrace what a story is as well. I mean, we've certainly experimented in our creator sessions about using interactive fiction, the sort of choose your own adventure of, of our youth, but uh, there's useful tools that are used in the video game industry with Twine and, and other techniques to possibly pick an ethical dilemma where we're not going to judge in the story, but we're going to allow you to choose and, and reveal the story that way, which has an extreme challenge in terms of creation uh, that we may not get to in the, in the short run of this project this, this time. Uh, we looked at mixed media, we looked at game, we've looked at augmented reality, uh, we've looked at video. And so those are all things that we sort of played in with the thinking genre of trying to document and provide reference. And then we've, we talked about how we try to bring questions in. With the references, we also try to offer a mixture of, we'll call it lowbrow and highbrow references. You know, something that is easily accessible, you know, maybe a, a medium post or a wired magazine, you know, something that's a little bit less than scholarly, and then also offering, you know, sort of a scholarly take on some of the themes that are introduced. So they're not from the hip. They're not completely made up stories. We're hoping that people read them and go, oh, this is plausible. And thus far, the feedback we've been getting, and the reason I think we're being effective with the stories in the future is if you imagine a bell curve, about a third of the people think we're way off in the future. About a third of the people think, we're going to be doing this stuff tomorrow. And about a third of the people say, yeah, I'll buy this for sort of 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Uh, so that's why I think we got it right. Ironically, the stories that are researched that are closer to reality are arguably the ones that people typically pick up and say that's further apart. So when we had heads together, uh, in addition to most people thought that was way off in the future. And I would argue that heads together, that could happen next year because all the component technologies out there. That's a really fascinating observation that the stories that are more based perhaps in research and reality are the ones that sometimes seem least plausible. And I suppose that tells us quite a lot, doesn't it, about um, you know how aware we are potentially of what's coming and maybe how little time we actually spend visualising our future or thinking really imaginatively and, and hard about it. Will, Creative Futures doesn't obviously rely just on textual storytelling. Matt's already explained that the RAF stories from the future is going into other formats, but I think you've been involved with Emily and others, in particular Jim Maltby at the Defence Science and Technology Lab, in creating a virtual reality museum of the future. Can you just give us a quick overview of that project? So it's worth saying we weren't responsible for the entirety of the Museum of the Future. The Museum of the Future is very much Jim's project involved with, if you just imagine museum virtual environment that's full of objects that don't exist yet, but which might, it's very much doing a job like these are technologies that militaries might use or approaches that the military might use. The bit that Emily and I were involved with, and I'm sure Emily will want to say something on this too, was about generating words that didn't provide that definition. So if you sometimes have a technology and you can go, oh, that's a visualization of what this war technology might look like. What we were responsible for was designing three environments, along with a team of other people, it's worth saying, designing three environments that would challenge that kind of perception of the future as being fixed and that you know what it is, without going into too much detail about them. One of them is called, ostensibly, very broadly, the future threat where the um, person partaking of the VR experience is challenged to almost work out what the threat is that is in that environment. The second environment is one that we had a working title of, of UN Greenkeepers, which is very much like Lungs of the Earth. So there's an interesting parallel evolution there. 
because it's concerned with rather than UN peacekeepers, would the UN have a kind of pollution and environment task force that they would deploy in certain things? And so there are certain rifts and tropes and ideas that emerge from that. And then the third environment is called No More Borders. And this, again, speaks to a lot of the things we've already been talking about, which is how do you have a nation state that cuts across all the social media if all those social media participants and people who are engaged with it do not feel like they are part of that nation state. So what happens to your national identity and your armed forces and your generational relationships if some people go, I am British, I am whatever nationality, whereas other people are saying, no, I'm not British, I'm a citizen of the world, or I'm a member of this clique within cyberspace that nobody else has heard of. If your core identity is works like that, what does that do to our relationships? So how does that change, therefore, how we understand the future and how we relate to it? So those are the kind of three environments that we took part in designing. Wow, I can't wait to go to this virtual reality museum of the future. Emily, did you want to come in there with anything to add? I think just to tie what Will was saying back to a couple of the things that we discussed before about the power of stories to get your brain working in order to put together just what the heck is happening in a situation and really design these worlds to chuck people into an immersive environment where we gave them no context, right? So they're going into this immersive world and they are having to pass the world with their quickly pattern recognizing brains and there will be stuff in them which do not exist in the present world that they are in so it's about getting them to pick up on those things that they see that is kind of familiar but at the same time pushing them into again practicing what it's like to be uncertain in a world because that experience of being uncertain in a world replicates what happens when we think of the future it is uncertain so what do we do with that and this is a kind of a nice if you like sort of exercise arena for getting people to confront the uncertainty to work out what they can work out and then what do you do from there how do you respond in relation to this uncertainty Mm -hmm. that's a form of futures literacy so it comes back to flexing that muscle, developing that capability. The, the role that you, Emily and Will, have been playing is in making sure that these three speculative worlds are really speculative and not fixed. But it sounds like they're going to be playing a very, very similar role to Matt's RAF stories from the future insofar as people visit these worlds or people read these stories and immerse themselves in those five minute fictions but then take something from that back into their presence. So you don't leave the museum of the future unchallenged, you leave it so that you're actually going back into the present and you're then understanding your present in slightly different ways. So it's absolutely not pure escapism. It's this sort of challenge where you're invited to kind of make links and you know go back into the present and think about the route that we might be taking out of there. Yeah, I, I think it's it's about something that's already been mentioned about. It's the ability to provoke the question, not provide the answer. And that seems really important in terms of futures literacy and in terms of thinking about future conflict and operating environments and how things might be. So the idea is that people go into these environments and they hopefully they will come out of it going, 
was it that or was it that or was it that some people are going to be quite annoyed about the environments and some people are going to be i think i've got that but the point is it's all about the assumptions that they project onto it as much as what's present in the environment themselves it's about that pattern recognition what are you doing in terms of interpreting that environment because if you can understand your own process of interpretation that again helps solve the cognitive bias issue that you can project onto the future Emily, if I may, um, as you mentioned earlier, I'm an ancient historian, so I spend a lot of my time in the past, not in the future, 2000 years in the past. Um, And and the Visualising War project actually started by looking at how past habits of narrating and visualising war continue to shape how we view and understand and conduct it now. So I'm really interested to ask you about a project which I think you have some connection to at Lancaster, the Past Futures Project. As I understand it, it looks at history as a valuable repository of futures that we haven't taken. So the past, in other words, is something that we can play with and and rewrite creatively to do some horizon scanning for the future. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And it's also about exploding, exploding the myth, if you like, that the past is fixed. The past, the past is fixed. It's uncovering kind of fault lines, if you like, forks in the road and points at which things could have been otherwise. And this is an extremely kind of powerful tool, really, for, again, you know, instead of bringing the future back to the present, it's bringing that multiplicity of the past, actually, into the present. So, yes, that the Past Futures Project emerged really from the work uh, of the Institute for Social Futures at Lancaster University, where I am a senior lecturer. And it's, it's run by a team of people, but specifically uh, Carlos Lopez Galvez, I should mention, who, whose wheelhouse this really is. And Carlos's work looks at precisely that. So moments in the city planning of Paris and London, for example, where you know, they've uncovered in archives different sets of plans that envisage the future, future of London or Paris in this way or that way. And they're seeing plans that were actually much more inclusive and consequent with the reality of lots of people in the cities that weren't taken, that different plans were chosen. And he also has with, I think, Nick Dunn, looked at the history of world fairs, for example. And they look at world fairs as kind of latent fictions, as visions of the future, which are kind of presented as not being the future, but have already arrived, right? We're already in the future. And questions critically, whose vision actually is is being pushed here in this, you know, who benefits from this particular welfare vision of the future. In, In my own work in this kind of area, I've looked at the adaptations of the myths from classical antiquity uh, by Kay Tempest, the performance poet, who in their long sort of epic poem, Brand New Ancients, and then later in a lyric sequence, Hold Your Own, they've been reworking the Homeric epic to democratise access. So the idea in Brand New Ancients is that the gods are no longer Zeus and them sitting up on Olympus, but the gods are everywhere. The gods are smoking fags around the corner. The gods are having sex in the toilets. You know, this is paraphrased from their poem. And the ways in which Kay Tempest uses myths in this circular fashion to bring the past up into the present in order to envisage a different future. So they're using kind of templates or archetypal mythological narratives, if you like, changing them dramatically, radically, adapting them for the contemporary world and thereby opening up kind of different futures. So it's this beautiful kind of circular kind of process of gathering up the past, 
taking it into the present and looking into the future. Mm -hmm. So that's my particular interest in this project of past futures. And it's really exciting to hear about Homer being used in that way, because Homer's Iliad has had such a profound impact for 2000 or more years, very much more than that, on the ways in which we don't just think about war, but do it because he canonized and, and then successive Greek authors and historians after him, and theoreticians and so on, canonized certain Homeric ideals about heroism, about glory, about self-sacrifice, about leadership and so on, which have continue to shape all the futures after Homer. But it's really interesting to hear about a narrative approach that actually takes some control back and really asks questions about agency and about whose vision and who is deciding and who is shaping the future. And that's incredibly important. Thinking then about who is shaping the future and our habits of visualising war, we've looked a little bit at the past, also talked a lot about storytelling that helps us look decades into the future. I want to end, if I can, just by touching on another aspect of time and how far our habits of visualising war tend to reach. A lot of guests on our podcast in this series have got us thinking about just how long the ripples of conflict go on long after the actual fighting has stopped, long after forces have left, guns have ceased firing and so on. So we've been thinking a lot about aftermath and the legacy of conflicts and the unendingness of its impacts. Do you think that speculative fiction, useful fiction, go or, or indeed science fiction, go far enough at the moment in visualising aftermath? Do we spend enough time visualising aftermath and what role can futures literacy play in that going forward? And I'm, I'm thinking partly of a, a number of research projects that are out there that I'm aware of. Roland Bleicher's Visualising Humanitarian Crises, for example, which is really about futures thinking, but very much focused on aftermath and the kinds of humanitarian crises that are not necessarily connected to conflict as well. Just be interesting to know what you think the role futures literacy can play in that. It's a really interesting question and a bit of a poser for me, I have to say, because when I think of aftermath in terms of science fiction or speculative fiction novels that have been about aftermath, there are a handful, but I can't think of a lot of them. But actually, the one that had the most profound impact on me, I don't know that you could call an aftermath novel. So it's not a post-apocalyptic text or anything like that. It's actually one by James Morrow called This Is The Way The World Ends. And it was written as a science fiction protest novel about nuclear deterrence. And it has future generations coming back to judge the people who caused the conflict. So it's far more fantastic than speculative fiction usually is. But that's the one that's really stuck with me about considering this is the ramification of your actions, which is what an aftermath novel would have to deal with to some extent. So it's a bit of a non-answer on one level, but I hope it's you know an interesting answer nonetheless. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to hear that actually you, you sort of have to rack your brains a little bit to find examples of that. But that idea that you might have people coming back from the future to review and reconsider and use the benefit of hindsight. That's an interesting use of storytelling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm reminded of the recent film release of The Tomorrow War, which um, was directed by Chris McKay and written, I think, by Zach Dean. It was due to be released via Paramount, but then got sold to Amazon Prime because of the pandemic. And this is this is a film which envisages the opposite rippling um, of, of aftermath. So um, there, a future a war happens in the future and they develop the technology to send a, a wormhole back in time, something like 20 to 30 years back in time 
in order to gather people from the past to come and help them fight this conflict in the future. So what you have there is a sudden kind of back rippling instead of the legacy sort of going forward into time. You see this back rippling and suddenly past generation is involved in a future conflict that they'd have no inkling of. And um, what this film does really cleverly, it's essentially it's a it's a climate crisis metaphor because it's working with this wonderful notion of past generations being now responsible for saving future generations. Right. In that they go to the future and help them overcome this this alien threat. And it's playing, I think, with this idea of the, the seventh generation thinking, which is said to be originally an Iroquois tribe mode of thinking about the future. This is a, a, an indigenous community in the northeast, north of America, the Iroquois. And they take any decision in the present based on this idea of what impacts it will have seven generations from now. And this is the kind of thinking that I think is being drawn into this extremely popular, big, sort of glossy Hollywood film production. But it's spinning that kind of direction of travel around and saying not only is their legacy going forward, but if you know that there's going to be legacy of a conflict going forward, what changes might you make in the present, knowing that you are going to be implicated in a future conflict? Fascinating. It's, yeah, that seventh generation thinking is, you know, it's another tool of visualisation, isn't it? I suppose I'm partly asking the question because we're recording this shortly after the Taliban um, have taken um, Afghanistan. And of course, some of the consequences of that very long running conflict and the end to that conflict were foreseen and some of them have absolutely not been foreseen and I've recently been reading a book by Emily Mayhew one of our previous podcast guests called The Four Horsemen and the Hope of a New Age and she talks also about Mosul in that book and the fact that one of the things that wasn't foreseen during the liberation of Mosul was that the contours and the conditions of conflict in a city essentially under siege were so changed that for the first time in their history the International Committee of the Red Cross had to decline to be present. And suddenly there was a major humanitarian crisis because the normal go-to people uh, for delivering humanitarian aid in a conflict couldn't come, were not able to come, and no one had visualised that. So that obviously requires some more future thinking. I want to pose one final question to Matt, if I may. So futures literacy, we've, we've looked at as playing a very valuable role in visualising future conflict. It's very hard to imagine conflict not being part of our future. And of course, visualising it helps us manage that conflict better, more effectively, but also ethically with minimal casualties, reducing humanitarian crises, potentially, as we've just talked about. But I wonder whether you think that futures literacy also has an obligation to visualise peace and conflict resolution more? And how can we ensure that that kind of visualization is really valuable and not just idealistic? I suppose another way of putting that question is, is it easier to tell stories of value about future threats than about future hopes? So, I mean, this is, this is a challenging question. And the reason it's challenging is, I think there's an underlying desire for optimism in, in all of the stories, at least from what the creators have. They, they want to envision a better future than, than we have today. So the whole idea of peace and resolution of conflict is something certainly defense is interested in. But the whole purpose of defense, the RAF, is, is really split in, in the title of defense and security. So it's responding to threats, mitigating, managing, resolving the threats, and then returning back to steady state. And I think one of the challenges that we've sort of unpicked a little bit in some of the stories is that security element isn't talked as much. And, you know, you see manifestations of it, you know, we 
we look at the, the past two years and, and what defense has been asked to do, it's not a traditional defense task. So you look at what the RAF and the, and the British Army and the Navy have all done. You know, we've been helping the NHS deliver COVID vaccinations, um, building hospitals in a matter of days. I mean, if you look at the Nightingale Project in London alone, um, and I forget how many people are involved in that, but it was well less than 100 people in terms of the British Army propping up an entire hospital in, in the London Excel Center. I mean, it's just staggering. The delivering of oxygen, the use of C-17 and other RAF assets to go pull people off the fork flung corners of the island uh, to get them to higher levels of medical care. So those challenge some of the roles and missions. Uh, and, and we're exploring that in, in the stories in the future. And, and that is an active discussion is, is how much do we need to prepare for the high-end conflict, which hopefully will never occur and dealing with the threat versus the stark reality of there are other forms of conflict. They just might not be an antagonist that's based on a nation state. It could be the environment. It could be, you know, a flood or some other type of disaster relief. You know, we look at using the, the Chinooks to rebuild dams in the United Kingdom in the past two years, you know, delivering aid. So those are all sort of challenges, but I think underlying those are still threats and conflict. They're just not necessarily a nation state or a hostile actor threat. And, and we are dealing with that in the stories project. Brilliant. Thank you so much for this incredibly fascinating discussion. It's been a long one and thank you very much for sparing all this time to talk to us. It's Really, really interesting to delve into futures literature, just find out more about the RAF stories from the future, but the genre of thick int of useful fiction more generally and what it can do to help us visualise war and visualise peace and the future more generally. Listeners can find the RAF stories from the future on their favourite search engine and you'll find several editions already out and as we've mentioned, more coming out soon. Emily Spears has a handbook of social futures coming out with Routledge shortly, co-edited with Carlos Lopez-Galvis, due to be published any day now as well. And there are all sorts of other publications by Will and Emily and the Flint Research Group, um, which you can find on their university web pages. So thank you very much, all of you, for being with me today. And thanks also to you, our listeners, for tuning in again. Next time, we will be doing some more time travel, but this time very much back in time to the distant past rather than forward into the future. My guests will be Royal Kanunajaik and Owen Rees, and they'll be talking about how ancient Greek writers and thinkers visualised the wars in their own recent pasts and how that then influenced later perceptions of those ancient conflicts, which in turn shaped how we visualise war and continue to visualise it today. And the following week, we'll then be heading on to the Roman world for the second in an ancient two-parter. So please do join us for both of those. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening.